Mark Zuckerberg told The New Yorker the news source he definitely follows is TechMeme. So listen to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, the podcast anyone who's anyone in Silicon Valley listens to every day. In just 15 to 20 minutes, you get a rundown of what happened in the world of tech with all the headlines, context, commentaries, and tweets from all the biggest players. New episodes every day at 5 p.m. Eastern. Search your favorite podcast app for Ride Home and subscribe to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast. Tired of spending hundreds of dollars for prescription glasses? Zenni offers thousands of affordable eyewear styles, starting at just $6.95. No ridiculous markups, no hassles, just quality, affordable eyewear delivered right to you. Visit Zenni today at zenni.com slash CNN. The nation's chief law enforcement official once cited scripture to defend separating thousands of migrant children from their parents. Tonight, the process of reconnecting them is being revealed as an unholy mess. John Berman here in for Anderson. The Trump administration had a deadline tonight not to reunify all families or even some families, merely to make sure every separated parent has a way to simply contact their child. So far, no answer on whether they succeeded with even that. The administration faces a new deadline tomorrow when the bar is lower still. Simply produce a list of all children under age five in custody and covered by the reunification order. More in a moment on that and what else the judge said. First, though, A simple question about HHS Secretary Alex Azar, whose department is responsible for caring for these children through the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Keeping them honest, what in heaven's name was he thinking when he said this? There there is no reason why any parent would not know where their child is located. I could, at the stroke of, at at keystrokes, I sat on the ORR portal with, with just basic keystrokes within seconds, could find any child in our care for any parent. So Secretary Azar said that 10 days ago, the same day a federal judge in San Diego gave the administration until July 10th to return kids under five to their parents and set a July 26th deadline for the rest. No problem. Just a few keystrokes, just a few seconds, he said. But by yesterday, Secretary Azar was saying HHS did not even have an exact count of how many children it had. Somewhere below 3,000, he said. An estimate about children. An estimate. So What happened to those magical keystrokes, those special buttons that find people within seconds? It seems their superpowers don't include actual counting. Still, he did say that HHS would meet all the deadlines. We will comply with the artificial deadlines created by the court. We will comply even if those deadlines prevent us from conducting our standard or even a truncated vetting process. Well, it turns out yesterday was so yesterday. Today, the administration said it might need more time, and Secretary Azar gave another conference call, this time for lawmakers. Senator Richard Blumenthal, a Democrat from Connecticut, wrote, Just got off the phone with HHS. I am furious and horrified after immigration conference call. Virtually no separated children have been reunited. No system, no plan, no path to assure reunification. No answers to key questions. Strategy seems to be blame everyone else. Another Democratic senator said the call was, and I am quoting here, it was Orwellian in its overconfidence and vagueness, sort of the way this is. There there is no reason why any parent would not know where their child is located. Keeping them honest, there is evidence the process was flawed from the outset. In order to take the kids from their parents, they were essentially reclassified as having entered the country unaccompanied, which obviously they were not. 
Then after a few days in border holding facilities, they were handed over to HHS and taken to all corners of the country. Their parents, meantime, stayed in border control, border patrol custody with their records in separate databases. So the New York Times, citing officials directly involved in the reunification process, says this was a big problem. HHS today said it's not. But again, the department is still scrambling after a week and a half to reunify even a single family, recruiting volunteers using DNA testing. And then there's this. In its court filing today, the Justice Department sought clarification on whether they have to reunite migrant kids with parents who were already deported and appeared to argue that it would be too difficult and time-consuming. Meaning what exactly? Is the DOJ asking, why even bother? What does it say that the people who took these kids in the first place are now asking a judge if they really have to bother to give them back? More now on the breaking news, the court hearing in the new deadline and what the administration said. CNN's Sullen Servati joins us now with that. Sullen, what is the latest from the courts today and do we know if any of these deadlines are going to be met? I think it's uh, pretty unclear tonight, John. They say they believe they'll make at least one of those deadlines, the deadline today to have phone calls between the separated kids and their parents. But on these more important deadlines about reunification, they say they will likely fall short and likely need more time. Reminder, Tuesday here, that's the deadline for them to reunite all kids under the age of five. We know that's about 100 kids. And by July 26th, they'll need to have reunited all children that have been separated from their parents. So today, the administration in court saying they do not expect to meet those two deadlines because officials today said they still don't necessarily know the location of every parent. And in court today, they really attempted to lay out before the judge why they believe, in their opinion, this process is so challenging to them notable that these are challenges, of course, of their own making, um, saying things like DNA testing that takes a long time. Uh, and so that was significant today here in court. Now, in court, we did also learn some new information about that group of kids, about 100 kids who are under the age of five. Among that group, 19 parents, 19 parents of those children have already been deported. That really speaking, John, to that they still don't know exactly where these parents are as they work to try to reunite these kids with their parents. The judge uh, did ask the government to supply a list by 5 p.m. tomorrow on Saturday of all these children under five, and they will reconvene court on Monday morning. So, Sullivan, what more do we know about what was said during this HHS conference call with lawmakers? Lawmakers pretty critical about it. That's right. They're very unhappy after the call. There was a call on the House side with House members and the Senate side um, with senators. And I spoke to many members after that call and aides who were also on the call. And they're dissatisfied. They say it's just disappointing the level of information, really wasted no time uh, to blast the HHS Secretary Azar over Twitter. You highlighted that one tweet from Senator Blumenthal, who said he's furious, horrified after this call. And that was a sentiment I heard from many members, the fact that they expected there would be some new information from the secretary today, and they did not give any new information beyond what they gave to press 24 hours ago. And it's uh, significant that you, uh, many of those aides said they thought it was a waste of time, total propaganda. So certainly lawmakers here are very disappointed mm. and expect to push the secretary for more. But as of now, they have no answers or even less than it seems press have. All right, Selena Serfati, thanks very much. With me now is Anna Navarro and Jason Miller. And Jason, you were very critical of Secretary Azar and his mixed message yesterday. Well, yesterday's mixed message became today's muddled message. Yesterday, he essentially admitted he couldn't count how many kids have been separated from their parents or were in custody. But the one thing he clearly did say yesterday 
was that they would meet the deadlines in reunifying them with their parents. Today, the government says, no, we're not going to meet the deadlines. We need an extension. What's going on here? Well, again, today we're seeing some of the same problems that we saw yesterday with the mixed messaging coming out and not having all the facts. And I think this is really uh, what the problem is with us and where the administration needs to do much better is we can't have this information coming out in bits and pieces and being incomplete uh, and then contradicting previous pieces. We need to be on top of the details. We need to get these kids reunited with their families and then have them go through the process and then deported out of the country if they're not accepted uh, through the asylum process. And obviously we're finding out now where we did get some more information today about the 49 children that have now spoken with their parents. Uh, and we are seeing some of them being brought together in very short order here. And I can understand if they say that where we've matched up children with their parents, we need a little bit extra time because we want to make sure that we're getting the right kids with the right parents. We want to make sure that there aren't criminal uh, backgrounds that we need to be concerned of. I totally understand that if that means a couple extra days, but that needs to be communicated. There needs to be a clear, consistent message and a game plan for how they're going to get to this. Uh, Because, again, the bigger problem here is uh, there's still folks who are trying to come across the border every single day. uh, But we are are talking about a group of people, again, separated from their parents by the U.S. government. And when you say they need to match them, it was the government that split them up. So I would hope the government had a process when they did split them. Hang on, on, I want to get Anna into this discussion. But John, John, a critical point here, and this was part of the thing that we found out over the last 24 hours or so, and this is part of the the hang-up with the Mm -hmm. judge, and I think why they're having a problem getting this done, is a lot of the kids have been separated from the parents. This happened even before the zero-tolerance policy went into effect. But but the the judge's ruling said that all had to be together, and so what we found that's why DHS knows that, that, to the exact but, number of children. That, that, that doesn't explain. That doesn't explain why the government couldn't count them. That doesn't explain why the government hasn't been able to connect them all by phone call. And that doesn't explain how the government hasn't been able to match them when this is the government that did it. Anna, you heard Secretary Azar say this is an artificial deadline presented by the judge here. Is that a compelling argument? Look, I think it's how they see it. I think uh, they're being truthful. What we can see through this government, from this government, is number one, they're incompetent. Number two, they're despicable liars, and they have been lying about this from day one. Number three, they can't get this done. They feel no sense of urgency. And I will tell you, uh, there seems to be very little genuine will to get this done because it's immigrants, right? Because they can abuse immigrants, because they can offend immigrants, because they can treat immigrants this way. Listen, John, any 16-year-old kid in a summer job would be expected to keep account of inventory. This is an inventory of widgets or gum. This is inventory of human beings, and they're Mm -hmm. not able to do it. They can't give answers to the court. They can't give answers to the press. They can't give answers to lawmakers. Here in South Florida, Carlos Curbelo, Republican, Republican congressman from District 26, tried to go visit one of the centers that is in his district. He had given HHS all the ample time and advice and announcement. He wasn't allowed in. They canceled his visit last Mm. night with less than 24 hours because they have no answers. They are the keystone cops. Whether you are for or against immigration, regardless of how you feel about this issue, you should be embarrassed. Every American should be embarrassed by the level of incompetence that is being revealed through this process. Jason, where's John, the pre- hang on one second. Where, where's the president on this? I know he's got a Supreme Court nomination to make, but he was in Montana 
last night giving a political rally. Couldn't he have been behind a desk making phone calls, trying to figure out how to expedite this process? This is a president who ran a business, likes to say, hey, get things done. I haven't seen him working to reunite these children with their parents. My understanding is the administration knows exactly how serious this is, and they're moving behind the scenes. But where's the president? I think they need to get. Why isn't the president the public face of this? Why isn't the president, who's not afraid to call out his attorney general from recusing himself from an investigation, why isn't he calling out HHS saying, guys, get your act together, get this done? My understanding is that the president is making sure that folks in the administration knows, know exactly how serious this is and that they got to move on it quick. There's something that Anna said that I agree with, uh, the fact that we're talking about people here. Yeah. And, John, we discussed this a bit earlier, that I think there's a rush too much to go and talk about, about this in the numbers term. Where these are human beings. Um, and this is why I think the, the, the security side of this and making sure that we're getting the right kids with the right parents and we're not handing kids over to drug, drug traffickers or human traffickers or meals or anything like this is very important because it could be one child, it could be 10, it could be 50. We don't know how many um, could possibly be mismatched or sent to the wrong people. And again, some of these kids have been put through perilous situations uh, in their journey north from Central America, we don't know exactly who no, they might it, be sent it, back it, to. It, this it, is important. Indeed, in, in, indeed. In perilous journeys, though, we have and, and to remember these, when these they are, got over here. Anna, right. I want to ask you quickly. Look, we got a quick last word Let me tell you here. something. I just, I don't, ahead, I, don't think he, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think the president cares, okay? He has shown very little uh, empathy towards any of this. It's a bunch of brown immigrants from places like Guatemala, Honduras, Oh, you Honduras, can't say that. Anna, you Salvador. can't say that. That's just Of course I can say it. He's been, he has been calling immigrants criminals and and rapists no from day one. He no. has shown us time and time again no. how Anna, he feels about president. immigrants. He has demon- no. demonized immigrants from day one. From, the, from the June 15th, 2015. Wait, Jason, from June 15th, 2016, he came down that stairwell, and the first thing he did was focus on attacking immigrants, and he has not stopped since. No, he so, wants to, you know, he wants these to enforce guys, these folks are not from Norway. He has called the countries that they come from. He has called the country that won. they come That's from. He, 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 he has, you know, he has set, he has given so many indications during the time as candidate and as president that he does not give a damn. Jason, 10 seconds. We got to go completely disagree with you. I think the president wants to secure a border like the majority of Americans do. We need stronger enforcement of our immigration laws. And also the president wants to get a comprehensive immigration plan done. So uh, kudos to the president for pushing that. I've said very clearly administration needs to do a better job with the problem that's in front of us right now. And I've been very clear to that point. Kudos to no one for getting these kids reunified. That's that joke. He tweets a different position on immigration every other day. Jason Miller, Anna Navarro, have a great weekend. I do appreciate your time. More breaking news tonight. A new court filing from the Russia special counsel's team that, for the very first time, connects the charges against Paul Manafort with the campaign he ran, the Trump campaign. Remember, as far as the president is concerned, not only do the charges have nothing to do with his campaign, he practically suggests his former campaign chairman had nothing to do with his campaign. I feel badly about a lot of it because I think a lot of it's very unfair. I mean, I look at uh, some of them where they go back 12 years. Like Manafort has nothing to do with our campaign. But I feel so, I tell you, I feel a little badly about it. They went back 12 years to get things that he did 12 years ago. You know, Paul Manafort worked for me for a very short period of time. He worked for Ronald Reagan. He worked for Bob Dole. He worked for John McCain, or his firm did. He worked for many other Republicans. He worked for me, what, for 49 days or something? A very short period of time. It was a pretty big job, but it was longer than that. In any case, things changed late today. CNN's Sarah Murray has the breaking news for us. Sarah, the Mueller team says that Manafort's bank fraud trial does have a campaign connection. What can you tell us about that? 
That's right. They put out a new court filing tonight, which is where we're getting these new details. And we didn't expect that Manafort's role in the Trump campaign was going to be really featured in the trial that he was facing. It has to do with financial crimes. It has to do with foreign lobbying allegations that he's facing. But Mueller's team basically said, look, we intend to present evidence that a banker helped Paul Manafort secure more than $6 million in loans while seeking a position within the Trump campaign, and that this person eventually went on to become an advisor to the Trump campaign and to try to get a role in the administration, although they were not capable of doing it. So here's how that fits in. Prosecutors have alleged that Paul Manafort used false information to get mortgages. Then he turned around and used that mortgage money as free income. And they're saying, you know, we need to explain how he was able to continue to get these loans. And the reason, at least in this case, they say he was able to to get these loans despite the dubious loan application was because the banker who was helping him get the money had uh, some personal ambitions of his own. Sarah Manafort's counsel also asked the judge to move the trial from Alexandria, Virginia to Roanoke. What's that about? That's right. They want to move the trial to Roanoke. They also put out another filing tonight saying they don't want his Virginia trial to start until after the trial in Washington, D.C. is concluded. So this could stretch on for a while if the judge decides to grant these requests. But in terms of changing the area where the trial is actually going to happen, the first trial that's in Virginia, Manafort's team is arguing that it's so saturated around Washington, D.C. in the Beltway that there's no way he could get a fair trial, an impartial jury in Alexandria, Virginia. And they're saying we should move it over to Roanoke. They also pointed out the way these two areas voted in the last election and said that Alexandria overwhelmingly voted for Hillary Clinton for president. And because the nation is so partisan right now, particularly in the areas surrounding the Beltway, that people's political views, the way that they voted, could ultimately play into how they decide a case about Paul Manafort, who worked on the Trump campaign. Sarah Murray, great to have you tonight. Thanks so much. Great to have you. Next, another sign that the Republican Party is truly Donald Trump's party, even at the expense of some of the party's best-loved former leaders. We'll talk about what the president said about John McCain and George H.W. Bush and what the reaction says about, well, a lot of things. Later, a live update from the Thai cave disaster where oxygen levels are dropping and the danger is growing. Tired of spending hundreds of dollars for prescription glasses? Our friends at Zenni Optical offer a huge variety of high-quality, stylish frames and state-of-the-art optics starting at just $6.95. You can get multiple frames with this great pricing for less than one pair elsewhere. Start building your eyewear wardrobe from the comfort of your own home at Zenni.com. With the latest trends in eyewear, available in hundreds of frame styles and materials, there isn't a better way to change it up for every season. Plus, Zenni offers prescription sunglasses at incredible prices. Visit Zenny today at zenny.com slash CNN. That's Z-E-N-N-I dot com slash CNN. So President Trump made a political name for himself in part by trashing his political elders, and he is doing it again. Early in his campaign, he trashed John McCain, said he wasn't a true war hero because he'd been captured. Now he's taking heat for saying this last night about the senator who is fighting brain cancer, not mentioning by name, but singling him out nonetheless for his no vote on repealing the uh, Affordable Care Act. You all remember that evening somebody came in with a thumbs down after campaigning for years that he was going to repeal and replace. But that's okay because we, for the most part, have already done it. He also refrained from actually naming President George H.W. Bush. Instead, he mocked the charitable movement that he launched. We are finally putting America first. We're putting America first. And by the way, 
You know, all the rhetoric you see here, the thousand points of light. What the hell was that, by the way? Thousand points of light. What did that mean? Does anyone know? I know one thing. Make America great again, we understand. Putting America first, we understand. Thousand points of light. I never quite got that one. I'm trying to say, what the hell is that? Has anyone ever figured that one out? And it was put out by a Republican, wasn't it? Today, the reaction came, and it was harsh from all corners. Ari Fleischer, a former Bush 41 and 43 staffer, actually just 43, called it rude. The Reverend Jesse Jackson defended Mr. Bush as a soldier, a servant, and president, a thousand points of light, representing a thousand ways people could serve and share. As for the Thousand Points of Light Foundation, it generates 20 million hours of volunteer service a year. Last year, it brought together five presidents to raise money for Gulf Coast hurricane recovery. Five presidents but not President Trump. His charity is being sued by the state of New York. Joining us now is Jim Schultz, Alice Stewart, and Van Jones. Alice, I want to start with you on this question. The criticism, again, from Republican circles about the president's words, pretty harsh, pretty swift. What's the purpose of attacking George H.W. Bush and specifically the words about a thousand points of light, a call to service? I don't understand why he ever would attack George H.W. Bush or any Republicans or John McCain or a war veteran, it makes no sense. I'm sure in his mind this is throwing red meat to his base, but it's rude. It's not very kind. And look, if he's trying to make a point about slogans, and granted he is the king of slogans, I'm all about make America great again. But let's make America gracious again. Let's not have these insults that are that are completely unnecessary. Republicans across the board think that in a rally like this, when he's out there campaigning for Matt Rosendale to, to, to beat uh, Senator Tester, let's talk about jobs. Let's talk about the economy. Let's talk about taxes, which he did. But it got overshadowed by this constant need for attacks mm-hmm. and criticizing people, which in his mind, it worked throughout the campaign and has worked throughout his administration. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. But I think it's time. For, for, for this kind of con, this conduct and insulting, especially of war heroes, to stop. All right, my friends, we do have some breaking news. I just had some papers handed to me uh, from Maggie Haberman and Michael Schmidt at the New York Times. The headline of the article is a shifting strategy. Trump's lawyers set new conditions for the Mueller interview. Rudy Giuliani is apparently saying that the president will not sit down with Mueller's team unless the special counsel proves or suggests it has evidence that the president committed a crime. The president would only speak to them if they can prove they have evidence he committed a crime. Jim, does that make any sense to you? Look, I'm not surprised. It seems that it's been going in that direction. You know, Rudy Giuliani has been inching closer and closer towards that as this strategy has played out. I'm not surprised that now he's saying that perhaps the president might not speak with Mueller's team unless those conditions are shown. It remains to be seen whether that's a negotiating point or not. I wouldn't be surprised if it's a negotiating point, but certainly um, it'll be something to watch in the coming days for sure. And, and Van, the other part of it is is that he won't sit down unless, unless the best project could prove that he exhausted all other possibilities before coming to the president. It just seems to me that they're raising the bar to this level where it makes it you know, unlikely, if not impossible, that the president will voluntarily agree to sit down. Uh, We're headed for a showdown, uh, possibly a constitutional crisis in that, uh, you know, Bill Clinton uh, said, look, I I don't want to answer to a subpoena. I'll I'll sit down. But he he was trying to get himself uh, to be a part of the process without giving up some of the presidential prerogatives. People 
didn't like it, but they had respect for it. This seems to be a very different approach of Donald Trump. He's trying to not participate, and he's, he's trying to create a situation where the bar is so high for a president to participate, essentially no president would ever have to participate. You, I mean, you can't actually come up with the evidence of a crime uh, sometimes if you can't talk to the person who may have committed the crime. And so uh, we could be headed toward a real crisis. If Mueller says, I'm going br- to bring you in here, and the Supreme Court is going to have to make a decision, uh, does this president have the right to, to stand above the law? Uh, that's where we could be headed. If you're talking about obstruction... Well, hold on, Dan. Let me just ask the question here, because if you're talking about obstruction, the president's mindset matters, and no one yes. besides the president can really speak directly to his mindset. So he would have to testify in order to find out more about that. I'm not saying he can be forced to necessarily, but if that's what they want to find out, he'd be the one they have to talk to. Look, to say at the outset, then, that Bill Clinton, just President Clinton, just volunteered out of the goodness of his heart because he cared about the Constitution is just ludicrous. First you of might want to get your hearing check. Just you like might want to get your hearing check before you respond to what I just said. Look, 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 luckily, there's something called YouTube. You can go back and look at what I actually said. I didn't say that. If you thought I said that, you get your hearing check. What I said was that Bill Clinton uh, did not want uh, to, to respond to a subpoena. No president wants to uh, give the uh, uh, law enforcement that power and concede to it. That I understand. But he did eventually get his, himself in that chair. Donald Trump seems to sure, not want to be in that chair. it's part of the negotiation, and that's what happens, you know. But do you think, Jim, this is part of the negotiation? Because it doesn't really seem like the end game here is to have the president sit down on his terms. It seems like it's to have him not sit down at all. Well, I think, I think the determination to whether he sits down or not is between the president and the president's lawyers. And that can be argued back and forth with Mueller's team. The issue of obstruction, the issue of of Russia, the issue of of um, of of the of of the interference with the election. All of those issues are going to be front and center yes. on the questions that Mueller is going to ask. Alice, We've I think, seen some of that already. Alice, I do think one thing is clear is that the president and his lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, have laid the groundwork not to do this. They've been making this political case and this PR case for him not to sit down with Mueller for months now. Right. And finally, Rudy Giuliani said something that actually makes uh, sense. And this is good advice. Hopefully the president will uh, embrace this advice and and do everything he can to try and avoid testifying. Or if he can, try and limit the scope, limit the amount of time and and limit limit the, the topics. However... It's not up to him. It is up to Mueller and exactly well, what he wants to do and how he wants to conduct this investigation. You know who it might be up to, Van? And this is the last question before we have to go. It might be up to the Supreme Court, right? Yes. If Mueller issues a subpoena, the president fights it, this could ultimately get all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the deciding judge, we don't know, could be a person who's announced Monday night by President Trump. How's that? Well, I mean, you know, listen, uh, it's, it's a reality television show inside of a soap opera wrapped up in a thriller and deep fried and some crazy. I mean, the whole thing is just, you know, it's just insane. It, you really could be in a situation where the president right now is picking the Supreme Court uh, justice that will decide whether or not he has to answer the subpoena. Mm-hmm. That's just and that's just called Friday in America. Uh, nowadays. And Brett Kavanaugh, who may be the leading candidate, has written that he does not think necessarily in most cases a president should be investigated. This will be fascinating. Jim Schultz, Al Stewart, Van Jones, appreciate you being with us and helping us cover the breaking news. And when we do return, breaking news out of Thailand, we're now learning about a planned rescue attempt to free that trop soccer team as soon as this weekend, as conditions inside that cave grow dire. We're going to have the latest from the scene next. Remember, to create an ad like this one, Visit purewinning.com slash CNN. 
Circumstances have changed in Thailand. They have grown more dire. The country's Navy SEAL commander now says time is limited to rescue those 12 boys in their coach from the flooded cave. The breaking news, there could be an attempt to get them out as soon as this weekend as oxygen levels decline and more rain set in. Let's see what Matt Rivers heard. He is on the scene and joins me now. Matt, tell us about the status of this latest possible operation. It could involve support from U.S. divers. Yeah, we're told that U.S. divers uh, could be involved in an operation as soon as this weekend trying to get these kids out of this cave. Basically, the situation has become more urgent because oxygen levels inside that cave have gone down. They're down to around 15 percent right now, John. Uh, Normal would be around 21 percent. So at that 15 level, you're talking about hypoxia. That can lead to altitude sickness and worse. And there had been a thought for a long time that worst case scenario, these kids could ride out the rainy season here in Thailand for months if necessary necessary underground. But given the oxygen levels, that's not really an option anymore. And so now rescuers are facing a situation here where they might have to go in and get these kids out sooner, even if they're not ready, even if their health isn't great, even if water levels aren't low enough. That would mean a diving operation. The kids would swim out with divers, possibly U.S. divers involved there. But remember, John, these kids have uh, uh, no diving experience. Mm -hmm. They can barely swim, a lot of them. Uh, And so that would be an operation fraught Uh, with danger. And Matt, we also know that this experienced Thai diver died returning from a mission to deliver oxygen tanks to the trap soccer team. How has morale been since that happened? I mean, when that happened, it kind of crystallized in a really heartbreaking way how dangerous this is. You had the jubilation of initially finding these kids, but then this reality has set in about how difficult it's going to be to get these kids out of here safely. I mean, take a look at the man who lost his life, a 38-year-old triathlete, a former professional Thai Navy diver, and he ran out of air inside this cave and lost his life. If that can happen to him, how would a group of boys who have no diving experience handle that on their own? I mean, that's a question, and because of that, morale has dipped Hmm. a bit. Everyone is still optimistic. Everyone still has a sense of mission, a sense of purpose. They want to get these kids out safely. But there is a strong sense of reality here, John, that this is not going to be easy. And this really is a choice between a lot of bad options. Matt Rivers, thank you. So since oxygen levels are dropping inside the cave, time is of the essence. We go now to Tom Foreman with more on the restricted airflow and a virtual look at the layout of the cave. Tom? John, the only thing that makes air move in and out of a cave typically is a change of temperature outside. And once you move two and a half miles in and more than a half mile down like this, that produces very little effect. So in practical terms, these boys and their coach are in a sealed chamber where the air is indeed running low. How low? They should be getting 21% oxygen in every breath they take. Right now, it seems to be more like 15%. Stick with that long enough, and that will decrease their ability to work strenuously. It will impair their coordination, maybe their thinking. There are even instances where what this causes is a decreased vision in low light. Yes, they're taking oxygen into them, and that could help some But this is a very worrisome development, John. So, Tom, how much progress are they making in terms of getting the water out of the cave? A lot, but not enough yet. They're pumping a tremendous amount. Right now, they're pushing out about 435,000 gallons per hour. That's two-thirds of an Olympic swimming pool. Just trying to open some brief, narrow window to rush these kids out. But... 
the indications we're getting from inside the cave is that they're not making enough progress. There are still many places that are flooded so much they absolutely would have to take them in scuba gear underwater in the dark for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour at a pop. We don't know. We just know that it's difficult and it's not getting better. All the pumping they've been doing so far has been aimed at the rain that fell since the boys went into the cave right here. They've had a little lull, but much worse rain is showing up in the next few days, and there is no indication that the pumps can handle that, John. So, Tom, we've heard so much about the difficulty for even professional divers getting back and forth to the boys. One has now died in the process. Can you explain? Yeah. Uh, Look, the currents are bad. The limited visibility is bad. But the single worst thing they seem to be encountering here is the length of this passage and the fact that some portions of it are so small, only one person can fit through. Even the divers are taking off their tanks to go through some parts here. So you can see how that would make it very hard to bring in supplies. Virtually impossible, along with the distance, to run some sort of an air duct through here. And imagine pulling a frightened, exhausted teenager underwater through a distance like that. Remember, even for the professionals, it's taking six hours to get from the outside to where these boys are. That's why some engineers are saying, look, use this just as a highway of aid. Take stuff into these kids, try to take care of them, and get up top and start pounding through a supply hole. Not a great big one, but enough to put water and food and air into them and keep these young people alive until you can effect a rescue, John. It is a daunting challenge. Tom Foreman, thanks so much. You're welcome. Stay with us. A lot more news ahead, including President Trump's defense of Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan accused of ignoring years of alleged sexual abuse by a team doctor when Jordan was an assistant wrestling coach at Ohio State. I'm Andy Katz from March Madness 365, and on this edition of our show, I'll be joined by Syracuse's Tyus Battle. I've been just trying to improve all facets of my game, just being able to be more offensive, throwing the ball different ways, shooting the ball, I think that's improved, and uh, just my playmaking ability as well. Subscribe to March Madness 365 now at Apple Podcasts and Spotify. President Trump, as you may recall, took a swipe at the Me Too movement last night at his speech to a friendly crowd in Montana. He also mocked Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, who has claimed Native American heritage as part of her background. Pocahontas, they always want me to apologize for saying it. Let's say I'm debating Pocahontas, right? I promise you I'll do this. I will take, you know those little kits they sell on television for $2? Learn your heritage. We will take that little kit and say, but we have to do it gently because we're in the Me Too generation, so we have to be very gentle. (laughs) And we will very gently take that kit and we will slowly toss it, hoping it doesn't hit her and injure her arm. The president, of course, is famous for attacking people, but he has also been quick to defend those who have been accused of bad acts, or in the case of the most recent example, Congressman Jim Jordan accused of ignoring them. Randy Kay reports. Onboard Air Force One, President Trump quick to defend Congressman Jim Jordan, telling reporters, I believe him. I believe him 100 percent. The Ohio Republican is facing allegations that he ignored years of sexual abuse by a team doctor when he was assistant wrestling coach at Ohio State University. Jordan has denied that. It's unclear what evidence, if any, the president has seen, but that didn't stop him from dismissing the accusers, saying simply, I don't believe them at all. 
This is hardly the first time Trump jumped to defend the accused and rejected the accusations against them. After Trump nominated his White House physician, Rear Admiral Ronnie Jackson, to run Veterans Affairs, Jackson was accused of multiple drunken episodes overseas, even banging on the hotel room door of a female employee. Jackson said the allegations were without merit, but ultimately took himself out of the running. Trump still publicly supported him. He would have done a great job. Did, He's got a tremendous heart. Any idea idea who you you might... know, these are all false accusations. That right. These are false. The president also defended Rob Porter after both of his ex-wives accused him of domestic abuse, which he denied. After Porter resigned as the White House staff secretary, Trump said this. As you probably know, he says he's innocent. And I think you have to remember that. A series of women accused Alabama Senate candidate Roy Moore of pursuing relationships with them as teenagers and in some cases forcing himself on them. Moore denied the claims. Trump still supported Moore in his Senate run. He denies it. He denies it. He totally denies it. He says it didn't happen. And after Fox News host Bill O'Reilly was accused of acting inappropriately with co-workers and female guests on his show, the New York Times reported he and Fox News paid five of the accusers a combined $13 million in exchange for their silence. Knowing that, Trump still had his back, telling the Times, quote, I think he shouldn't have settled. I don't think Bill did anything wrong. O'Reilly denied acting inappropriately. Also, when multiple women complained that Fox News President Roger Ailes had sexually harassed them, ultimately leading to his firing from the network, Trump called the accusations totally unfounded and painted a rosy picture of Ailes, who also denied the claims. Some of the women that are complaining, I know how much he's helped them, and even recently. Perhaps all of this should come as no surprise. After all, Donald Trump has defended himself, too after more than a dozen women accused him of behaving inappropriately with them. He denied it all, even mocking one at a campaign rally. When you looked at that horrible woman last night, you said, I don't think so. I don't think so. The stories are total fiction. Randy Kay, CNN, New York. Coming up, ever feel like the Trump presidency is one giant reality show? The former Apprentice host certainly knows how to grab attention when he's on camera. Two other men who took part in the golden age of reality TV share their thoughts on the subject. Anderson Cooper and Andy Cohen with the premiere of the CNN original series The 2000s debuting this weekend. Anderson and Andy get real next. Hey, it's Howard Beck and I've got former NBA champion and current Yes analyst Richard Jefferson on Bleacher Reports The Full 48. For me, winning the championship just validated, you know, me from a standpoint of like, all I ever wanted to do was win. All I ever wanted to do was win on a high, high level. And so to get that, then it just made everything feel like it was worth it. The Full 48 is now available on Spotify. And of course, you can always listen and subscribe on the Bleacher Report app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This Sunday night, prepare to be taken back in time to the 2000s, the aughts, if you will. Another deep dive into another fascinating decade here on CNN. One of the phenomenons that exploded during that decade, reality TV. Anderson Cooper was part of it, and so was his good friend Andy Cohen of Bravo TV fame. Two pioneers, if you will. The pair just sat down together to reflect back on the era that reshaped the world of television as we know it. 
So when you started in like 2004, you started at Bravo. Yes. And you were the executive producer or an executive producer on Queer Eye. Yes. As well as... Queer Eye, Project Runway. Uh, those were the two big shows at Bravo at the time. Off the back of Project Runway, we created Top Chef. We wanted to do for food what we had done for fashion, and really shows that highlighted creativity. What do you think it was about reality TV, particularly at that time, that um, that exploded? For us, it was about uh, unique people who were super talented. Why are you shouting, by the way? I know, I always shout. I know, I always shout in interviews. No, it's okay. Um, For us, it was about unique (laughs) create. For us, it was about unique creative people who were extremely talented, uh, being creative on TV in the fields of food, fashion, beauty, and design. Those were the shows that really launched Bravo. But starting with Queer Eye, I mean, I've heard you describe Housewives as sort of a modern day soap opera. I think Housewives... It's sort of replaced soap operas in many ways. Housewives uh, has replaced soap operas completely. It's the great modern-day soap opera. It's been going about 12 years. And I don't think even we realized what we had in 2006 when The Real Housewives of Orange County premiered. But, I mean, how much is of the success of reality TV is the economics behind it? That it's, it's obviously cheaper to do than... You know, scripted program. I think the economics of reality TV was a large driver in the um, huge output of reality TV in the early 2000s. I think people started saying, wait a minute, Survivor's hitting, Big Brother's hitting. Uh, The Mole was hitting. The Mole was hitting and then kind of went out like a thud. But um, no, we'll try. Too confusing. It was too confusing. confusing. I tried. I was your friend. No, I was confused. I don't understand this. If you're the host of The Mole and you don't understand it, (laughs) problematic. Uh, Anyway. There was a lot going on. Yes. But, but Yes, the economics are what got people in. And then once people were in, it's like, wait a minute, you realize that this is a format where you can do anything. If you look at the different genres of reality TV, there are so many. There are talent-based, there are competition shows, there are closed-ended shows, there are shows that have no format that are just fly-on-the-wall docuseries. It is interesting, though, how I mean, the world of politics has now been impacted by reality TV. I mean, obviously, well, I mean, we, we have, have a president a, we have who... A president who is a reality star, and I think one of the reasons for his success is that he knows how to uh, grab people's attention in front of the camera. He's, there's no one more comfortable in front of a camera, and arguably there's no one who loves a camera more than Donald Trump. And all those years on The Apprentice, I think, really taught him how to communicate with people. You know, not that he didn't have it originally, but you got to give it to the guy. Andy, thanks very much. Thanks, Anderson. Thanks, Andy. So it wasn't just the mole or reality programming that changed TV in the landscape forever in the first decade of the millennium. The CNN original series, The 2000s, kicks off with the platinum age of TV this Sunday at 9 p.m. Here's a preview. You don't need to call it a guilty pleasure. Just call it a pleasure. It's something you love watching. Great TV comes in many forms. It was more cinematic looking. It was a whole new level on television. The decade gave us television reflecting what America looks like. This is CNN's coverage of election 2000. The system had never had this kind of stress test before, and it failed. There has just been a huge explosion. I can't see that second tower. This has changed everything. 
They created the global war on terror. Person after person are saying, where is the federal government? You really did think the financial world could collapse. What do you think, Christina or Brittany? I said Beyonce. Take me out! I could not believe I could actually take my music with me. The notion of living a digital life began to take hold. In a course of a decade, the world was changed forever. So many people around the world depend on CNN's quality reporting. And now they have an incredible online store with clothes, gear, and gadgets. Right now, you can get 15% off your purchase. Just visit store.cnn.com. And when you're checking out, enter the code CNN Podcast. Just one word. And get a 15% discount. It's that simple. That's store.cnn.com. Thanks so much for watching 360. I'm John Berman. The CNN original series, The 80s, starts right now. Are you ready to learn how to build a better consulting or professional services company? Then download the Liston.io show for the best sales and marketing advice so you can deliver your services to the people who need you the most. On the show, I'll be interviewing the smartest people in the industry to share what they know about building a better consulting business. I'll also give you episodes where I tell you specifically how to sell your services with confidence and how to transform into an influential leader in your industry. Your happy clients probably want to help you. It's too hard for them right now. You're asking them to do too much of the selling that you should be doing. Yeah, it's going to move. It's going to change. It's going to disrupt you at some point in time. Your most loyal clients are your most profitable. Ready to learn how other people are building the consulting company you've always wanted? Download the Liston.io show spelled L-I-S-T-O-N dot I-O wherever you get your podcasts. Before you go, we wanted to let you know that we just launched the ability for anyone to advertise on CNN Podcasts. You're just a few clicks away from reaching millions of people in a way that you never have before. Advertise for a business event or kick off an awareness campaign for your brand. Start today at purewinning.com slash CNN. Integrating podcasts into your marketing mix has never been easier. Go to purewinning.com slash CNN to get started.